You are listening to the teaching ministries of Southwest Church, located in the heart of Springboro, Ohio, at 150 Remick Boulevard, beside the Kaufman Family YMCA. Please visit our website at www.southwestchurch.org. What a great song, and a great reminder that we're called to be children of God. Before we uh, dismiss our students and before uh, Andrew kicks off our message this morning, uh, on a very important and a very appropriate topic for this weekend entitled, Jesus, What is Up with All the Confusion? Before we uh, jump into that, before we dismiss our students, I'd, I'd like to make a quick comment and then lead us in prayer. All you have to do is watch the news or or, uh, you know, look at any news feed and you can quickly recognize that we are truly living in some confusing times. Whether it's uh, the most recent news coming out of North Korea or the appalling rally and unrest yesterday in Virginia. I believe it's important for the church to pray for our leaders And to pray for peace as we're commanded in Scripture. But I believe it's also important for the church of Jesus Christ to renounce hatred, prejudice, and injustice. And instead be a people that promotes hope and love in the name of Jesus Christ. Would you join me in praying? Dear God, we, uh, we watch the news and we're troubled. And yet you told us, your son told us that we would have trouble in this world. And that our peace is not in the news or in politics or current events, but that our peace is in you. Help us keep our hope and our focus and our peace where it needs to be. We do ask, Father, that you will guide and, and uh, lead our leaders. And we pray, Father, for peace throughout this world. And we pray, Father, for opportunities to share your message of good news with people that seem bombarded with bad news. And yet, Father, show us as a church how we can stand up against uh, and oppose any form of oppression or injustice or prejudice or hate. And instead, help us reflect to the world around us love and good news and grace and mercy. Thank you, God, that you are that kind of God that invites us with open arms, with love and with mercy. Help us not only receive that grace from you, but help us as a people extend it to others. I pray, Father, today as uh, the children are being taught, as the students will be taught as they're dismissed, and as we, as we teach here in this room, that, that you will open our hearts to what you want us to hear. And I pray that you'll be with every teacher, every speaker, and that your spirit will guide us to say what needs to be said. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to go ahead and dismiss our 6th through 12th grade students now. We have a class designed for you, and I'm going to turn it over to Andrew.
Yeah, so it's uh, week two of Jesus What Is Up With. If you were not able to be with us last weekend, uh, we started uh, this uh, brief three-week series uh, that was uh, kind of inspired by submissions and thoughts from those of you sitting in those green chairs out there. Back in July, we asked you to finish the statement or finish the question, Jesus What Is Up With, and we got a lot of really, really good responses. Uh, The staff was able to get together and kind of whittle all those down to uh, 12 uh, questions that we felt led to address, and we were able to kind of divide those 12 into uh, four little neat weekends, or three weekends of four questions apiece. So uh, if we could kind of put the four questions this morning into uh, one phrase, it would be, Jesus, what is up with all the confusion? Dealing with maybe some aspects of God's character that are misunderstood, or even wrong altogether, and also uh, just other worldviews and religions out there. So Uh, I get to kick this off. Roger gets questions two and three, and I'll uh, wrap things up with a fourth question. Uh, The first one to address, someone uh, submitted, Jesus, what is up with Muslims persecuting Christians? Now, just to speak to how how complex this is, uh, in my due diligence in researching this question early this week, uh, I could not find, I know they're out there, but I could not find one objective scholarly article addressing this issue in an unbiased way. Uh, This entire issue has been, uh, actually just in saying the word Muslim, most of us uh, have political connotations come to mind, right? And not religious ones. That right there says this is already maybe something that has been politicized that probably shouldn't be. And certainly it's more complex than we would ever have time to address in the most honorable way from the stage. Uh, In order to fully understand this, we would have to go back through centuries upon centuries of, of history and geography and politics and a bunch of other categories, but we don't have the time for that, and I would bore myself out of my mind. So uh, going forward, it's a complex situation, uh, but I want to try and honor this uh, in, the, in, the, in the time allotted. Uh, the simple answer to a complex issue, uh, or a simple answer, is there is a very very small faction of Muslims that we would consider extreme radicals. And these extreme radicals have politicized their religious text. That's the Koran. We have the Bible. They have the Koran. And they have interpreted their scripture as commanding death to those who will not convert, or at least death to those who wouldn't uh, convert under brute force first. Now, right out the gate, again, that is a very, very small faction Now, most Muslims are about as violent as the people sitting in this room are. I really believe that. So I would go so far as to say that it would be unfair to uh, put all Muslims in this one basket. Uh, I'd say it's as unfair as saying everyone in this room believes and behaves in the same way of those from Westboro Baptist Church out in Topeka, Kansas. Uh, It would just be more than unfair. It would be unjust. but in reading this, uh, reading, uh, doing my research on this and certainly looking at the news recently, I was prompted uh, to uh, look at this scripture from, from 1 John. This is what John wrote in one of his letters. He writes, Dear friends, since God loved us that much, we surely ought to love each other. No one has ever seen God, but if we love each other, God lives in us and his love is brought to full expression in us. This text gives Jesus' followers a very noble but very difficult task, which is to love. Sometimes loving is very easy. Sometimes it is more than difficult. It almost feels impossible sometimes. 
the Muslim extremists in question, uh, they are driven by things like anger and fear. They view their God, Allah, as this hateful and angry deity and that their own existence is dependent on, uh, on them. Well, they live this in this constant fear of disappointing Allah and they're afraid they won't get into paradise. And I was thinking about that viewpoint and I was like, you know, I am just so grateful and so thankful that there is not a trace of hate or anger in Jesus. Amen. There is not a trace of hate or anger in, yeah, in Jesus. Which that gives me a big sigh of relief. You know, in his Sermon on the Mount, uh, Jesus preaches uh, this thing about loving and uh, even addressing persecution in a way that's going to make us uncomfortable. He takes love this far to this distance. From Matthew 5, Jesus says to this crowd of people, God blesses you when people mock you and persecute you and lie about you and say all sorts of evil things against you because you are my followers. Be happy about it. Be very glad. For a great reward awaits you in heaven. And remember, the ancient prophets were persecuted in the same way. By his language, Jesus seems to expect us to be, per- to be persecuted. And this makes sense in many ways. One of those is that Jesus himself was persecuted and more than once. And then he says when, not if, but when you're persecuted, to be happy about it. Now, I don't think we as Americans can even begin to understand this. You know, the most any of us would be or even have been persecuted is maybe someone rolled their eyes at us once or made a joke at our expense. And that's it. Which is not persecution at all. We have no idea what persecution is. Not experientially. So what's up with Muslims persecuting Christians? Kind of take this in a different direction. Muslims persecuting Christians tells me that there are people out there giving their lives to the ministry and message of Jesus. They're giving their lives to the gospel. That there are people out there actively living and dying for their faith in Jesus and that Jesus has promised them a great reward in eternity with him. I was thinking about this. Just imagine all of us, just like imagine you yourselves, all of us being known first and foremost as a Jesus follower, even more than as, as parent or sibling or student or boss or coworker. What if above all those we were known as Jesus follower first? Because I know some of us, even my include, there are people in my life who maybe just don't know at all that I follow Jesus, let alone that, you know, I, that I do this for a living. It's a dangerous thing to pray for persecution, so I won't pray for that. But I will pray for everyone in this room, and I hope for everyone in this room, that we would be known first and foremost as Jesus followers, whatever form that might take in our relationships. And not just that, but especially when we do hear uh, instances of people, of our brothers and sisters in Jesus being persecuted, whether in this country or especially abroad, uh, that when we hear this, that when that anger and hate seeps into our hearts like it does mine so quickly that we can take on the spirit of Jesus when he was on the cross. Because when he was on the, cross, on the cross, Jesus prayed for his captors. He prayed for his torturers. He prayed for those who were persecuting him. And this is what he said in his prayer in Luke 23. He says, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. Father, please forgive them. They have no idea what they're doing right now. I 100% believe that if persecutors truly knew what they were doing, they would stop instantly and fall in, Jesus, in love with Jesus right then and there. I really think that. But until then, uh, what I want to pray for is certainly forgiving hearts, 
which is sometimes one of the most difficult things to pray for, but I pray for it anyway, and even a different look at persecution altogether. Rod, I knew you maybe had some, a brief thought or two on this. My, my initial thought when I saw this question is, is, as individuals who are following a crucified Lord, why would we not expect to be persecuted? And in fact, it should be uh, odd that we're not persecuted if we're really, truly following Jesus. Well, let me go ahead and tackle the second question, and I'm going to start a stopwatch because I'm conscious of not robbing Andrew of his time, okay? So um, the second question is, Jesus, what's up uh, with, in the Bible, knowing what is cultural and what is for all time? For example, women silent in the church. Uh, When we uh, you know, focused on these questions and said, okay, these are the 12 questions we're going to tackle in a three-week period. I left it up to, to Andrew this week, like, which ones do you want to tackle? I noticed he didn't want anything to do with this one, okay? No. He just ran from it. Belongs it belongs so, to you. So here we go. This is a question, the one that I've uh, wrestled with for years, and, and to help illustrate the challenge of unpacking questions like this, I, I'd like to give a real-life example. Um, numerous times in my married life over the past 34 years, and I'm a slow learner, so that's why it keeps happening, is that I'll walk into the house or I'll walk into a room and my wife will be on the phone. And I will try to figure out who she's talking to and what she's talking about. And I have even been known in moments of weakness to try to inject words into the conversation only to find out that I didn't know who she was talking to, I'd made the wrong conclusion, and that I didn't really know what they were talking about. You see, context is so important to understand what's really going on. Well, that's the way it is many times when we approach Scripture, especially portions of the New Testament, the part of the Bible written after Jesus uh, was crucified and resurrected, Because a good part of the New Testament are letters, letters from uh, maybe, for example, like the Apostle Paul to an individual or church. And one of those letters that I wanted to highlight today is is a letter, it's called 1 Corinthians. It's found in the Bible. If you have your Bible, you might want to turn there. But in 1 Corinthians, and you might have guessed it, it's the first letter to this church in Corinth, Greece from the Apostle Paul. But what's interesting is that it's so important for us to understand the historical and, and cultural and social context of these letters. Because when you dig into this letter, what you find out is that this was correspondence going back and forth between this church that seemed to have a lot of problems with the Apostle Paul. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, in verse 1, Paul writes, Now regarding the questions you asked in your letter. So it's obvious that even this first letter that Paul's writing them is a response to a letter that they had sent him with a list of questions. And that's why when you read 1 Corinthians, it seems like Paul's all over the map because he's trying to answer some of the questions that they'd sent him. For example, in chapter 11, verse 5, Paul says this, but a woman dishonors her head if she prays or prophesies without a covering on her head. For this is the same as shaving her head. And so, you know, he even gets into details and and responding to questions about the length of hair um, and uh, for men and women. And although we don't have too long to camp out 
on this verse, it's important to note a couple things here. That the women in Corinth were praying and prophesying in the gatherings of the early church. And the issue was not that they could pray or prophesy. And and by the way, we don't use that word prophesy a lot today, Andrew. But today we would probably say teach, preach, challenge, exhort um, on behalf of God. But it was assumed that women were uh, taking a part in these activities. But the challenge here is called into question was whether or not they had the proper head covering. Now, it's important to, to observe some things about uh, the people that were inspired to write, uh, to record God's written word. And I do believe that the Bible is God's written word. And yet, I can't resist noting that the Apostle Paul was not married. Some have suggested that only a single man would accept this call to give a woman advice on what to wear or the length of her hair. I'm just saying from years of marriage that, that, uh, that I typically don't go there, okay? But the, the Apostle Paul is inspired by God to write this church to make sure, sure that they were conducting themselves in such a way not to violate cultural or societal norms that could hinder their influence and their witness to the world around them. Now, as we move on to 1 Corinthians 14, it's important to note that the context of 1 Corinthians 14, if you go back and read the whole chapter, context is important, is that Paul's addressing disruptions in the public gatherings that were creating confusion and disunity. And in verse 33 of 1 Corinthians 14, we read this. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the meetings of God's holy people. Women should be silent during the church meetings. It is not proper for them to speak. They should be submissive, just as the law says. If they have any questions, they should ask their husbands at home. For it is improper for women to speak in church meetings. Now, there are two important things for us to note as we seek to understand this Bible passage and Bible passages like it. The first is that we obviously can't read this text to say that women are to be absolutely silent because then the question would be, how could women sing? And in Scripture, men and women are commanded to sing praises to God. And I know of no one who takes the position, even the most conservative churches that I've interacted with, uh, that no one takes the position that women can't sing in public gatherings. So obviously Paul's not talking about absolute silence. Another thing that I think is important for us to understand is that, that Paul has already mentioned in this letter to 1 Corinthians, and he describes women as praying and prophesying in the church. So again, you can't do that by remaining silent. So there must be something else that Paul is addressing here. And once again, if you go back to the context, you can see throughout this chapter that he's addressing some practices in the Corinthian church that has been causing disruptions and disunity within the church. And so we go back to verse 34 and ask the question, who are the women that Paul is addressing? Now, here's an interesting thing. In the Greek language, the word woman or women and wife and wives are the same word. 
Context is how you determine whether you read that or understand it as woman or wife. It appears to me that there were some specific women, possibly even wives, who were causing disruptions in the church gathering. So let me conclude my thoughts, and maybe I'm raising more questions than answering today, but I want to conclude my thoughts by reading a fairly long quote from a very conservative scholar, one who would take, I think, a more conservative position on the role of women in the church than I do. But listen to what he has to say about this passage. He says, obviously, it was written, the passage in 1 Corinthians 14, it was written to women whose husbands could answer their questions. Paul was referring to ladies married to prophets. Apparently, some prophets' wives were interrupting them as they prophesied to the congregation. Their activity stopped the flow of God's revelation. Remember, they did not have the copies of the New Testament as we do now. The apostle corrected their rudeness and commanded them to ask questions at home rather than continue to disrupt the communication of God's spoken word. You see, I believe context is huge to understand some of these difficult passages. I have nothing to say. (laughs) A wise choice as a single man. We have a follow-up. That was, um, I wouldn't call that a boring question, but when you lay it next to this next question, this next one is, it's a big, fat, juicy one. It is. And you get that one too. This was the only question I said, I really want this one, Okay. Uh, the question, this question was, Jesus, what is up with God being the ultimate bully? Now, this was a question as we read, the, and it was an entire paragraph, the question, okay? It was a very sincerely submitted question, which we appreciated, and it was anonymously submitted as all these were. But it was, it was obvious that this question concerned some of the Bible texts that we had addressed earlier in the year in a series of messages from a book in the Old Testament the book of Joshua. And it appeared that this question uh, uh, and actually this message series and some of the things said in this message series had created real problems for this particular person and their spouse. In fact, in the question, this person said that their spouse had even quit attending this church because they were troubled by the way God was presented and, and they went on to say of a divine being who arbitrarily killed and slaughtered people groups. Well, this question broke my heart, and that's why I wanted to address it. And I would love to know who wrote this question, not because I'm upset, but because I'd love to apologize in person if there's anything that we said from stage that led you to, to believe that that was the the portrait of God we try to portray here at Southwest. Because I I believe that that God, the God of the Bible, is a a God of love. And, And in fact, I've been reading a number of books this summer delving into this very subject of how do you make sense of understand God as you read both the Old Testament and New Testament. One of the books I read was from a Jewish scholar who had some fascinating things to say about the grace of God that he sees demonstrated so clearly in the Old Testament. And I just, I found that fascinating and intriguing. Often I hear people make comments that that they struggle with the difference that they see in God in the Old Testament and the New Testament. 
And yet, as I continue to read Scripture and dig into it more deeply, I don't see that disparity. In fact, what I see once over and over again is a God in the Old Testament as being a God that's portrayed as loving, kind, patient, and full of grace. In fact, let's listen to this early self-description of God um, that God gives of himself to Moses, someone he was calling to rescue people from oppression. And we're going to skip to Exodus 34. In Exodus 34 in verse 5, it says, Then the Lord came down in a cloud and stood there up with him, and he called out his own name, Yahweh. The Lord passed in front of Moses, calling out, Yahweh, the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy. See how God describes himself? The God of compassion and mercy. I am slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin, but I do not excuse the guilty. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children and grandchildren. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generation. What do you see from this self-description of God in Scripture? I see a God who's described as full of compassion and mercy, who's slow to anger, filled with unfailing love, or as the New American Standard Bible reads, loving kindness. He's faithful, or as one translation reads, truthful. We see a God that's eager to forgive, and yet a God who acknowledges that our sin, our bad choices in life has consequences, and sometimes those consequences can be felt for generations, and families have been impacted by that. And yet the Lord, Yahweh, which we believe is his name, is a God who's eager to forgive. We see a God who is even patient with the king of Egypt, Pharaoh. Personally, I don't read the 10 plagues of God on Egypt as God toying with Pharaoh, but instead I see God extending many opportunities to, uh, for even Pharaoh to repent, and yet he wasn't willing. It's also important to note that, that God was the toughest on those who were oppressing others. The Egyptians had been impressing Jewish people for over 400 years. And finally, Scripture says that the Lord heard the cries of the oppressed, the Jews, and intervened in a miraculous, powerful way to bring justice and freedom for the oppressed. And then you get to the successor of Moses, Joshua. He was called to lead the people of Israel into the promised land. Now, this is where the problem enters in for many 21st century believers. You try to wrestle with, okay, why did God have to displace these people, these people groups that were in the promised land so that Israel could have it? Well, I think there's some insight even into that to show the patience of God. For example, Earlier in the Bible, in Genesis 15, one of the people groups is described that possessed the promised land. It was a people group called the Canaanite, excuse me, the, the Amorites. And the Amorites were described first in Genesis 15, okay? In Genesis 15, this is what God said to Abraham 400 years before Joshua goes into the promised land with the people of God. 
This is what the Lord said in Genesis 15, 13. Then the Lord said to Abram, that was his name before it was changed to Abraham, you can be sure that your descendants will be strangers in a foreign land where they'll be oppressed as slaves for 400 years. He's foretelling what would happen in Egypt. But I will punish the nation that enslaves them, and in the end, they will come away with great wealth. As for you, Abraham, you will die in peace and be buried at a ripe old age. After four generations, your descendants will return here to this land. For the sins of the Amorites do not yet warrant their destruction. What do you see there? What I see is that God sees the problem of some of the sin and some of the evil that's going on with the Amorite people and other people groups there in Canaan where the the Israelites would eventually inherit that promised land. But God says the Amorite's sin has not yet reached its full. In other words, God's saying, I love these people and I'm going to give them every opportunity to repent and turn back to me. And how long does he wait? He waits 400 years before he sends Joshua in there. And then when you research and find out some of the the horrible, terrible things that these these Amorites and other people groups in in the promised land were doing, they were doing things like child sacrifices and terrible things. And God finally just says, I can't take it anymore. I've waited and waited and I've longed for these people to change. But now we're going to wipe the slate clean. We're going to start over with the people that hopefully will honor me and worship me. So once again, I, I see a God who is loving and patient and patient beyond what I'm able to be patient. And, and yet he, he cares deeply. So that's the God I see throughout Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament. And I think if you dig a little deeper, you can see that same portrait emerge. Yeah, and I know this question, excuse me, uh, that question we got, it could take on a lot of different forms because it's a very common conversation and thought that, hey, this Old Testament God seems to be different than how God's portrayed the New Testament, and especially for those who haven't been able to study to the extent that we've been able to, um, the best reminder or the best piece of advice I can give on this is if ever you find yourself doubting God's character, particularly as he's portrayed or seemingly portrayed in the Old Testament Look straight to Jesus. That's right. Jesus is the 100% uh, walking around representation of who God is. So if ever there's in doubt, look at Jesus. That's where our truth and reality is. Very good. Yeah. So we got this one more. And uh, this question, this final question, reads something like this. Jesus, what is up with some people connecting so easily with you while I constantly struggle to? Uh, before I kind of hit this question from two separate angles, I wanted to say that this question very easily could have been submitted by me. It wasn't, but it could have been. Uh, you know, I've grown up going to church, and a constant observation I've had uh, pretty much this whole time is uh, other people seeming to have uh, things like a you know more intimate worship experiences than me, or a more powerful and vibrant prayer life than I have. Or it seems that you know, God is showing up in the lives of other people so much more than mine. Or, and even just feeling like the presence and direction of the Holy Spirit more than I ever do. So, you know, so often growing up, I ask myself the question, what am I missing that everyone else seems to be getting? What am I missing here? And this still happens. It still happens uh, to me today. Uh, there are a couple different reasons. There are a few that I'll go over. One reason is... One reason some people struggle to uh, struggle with this area is 
they view God mistakenly. They view God as sort of like a divine butler uh, who should answer you know, our every desire, which he's not. That's a terrible description of who God is. Uh, more than anything, he's after a relationship with us, and uh, relationships, if they're going to grow, take two things. They take time, and they take closeness or proximity. Uh, just right now, kind of bring your best friend in the whole world to mind. Now, how did you become best friends? How did you reach that depth in your relationship? By being around each other a lot and doing that over and over again. Time and closeness, time and proximity. My favorite author on prayer, E.M. Bounds, he has this to say. He says, God's acquaintance is not made hurriedly. He doesn't bestow his gifts on the casual or the hasty comer and goer. To be much alone with God is the secret of knowing him and of influence with him. To be much alone, time and closeness. He says that's the secret. In reading that, I couldn't help but think of that verse from James chapter 4. That's uh, verse 8. This is what James writes. He says, come close to God and God will come close to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts. For your loyalty is divided between God and the world. Uh, Our culture is not built uh, to connect with God very easily. Our culture doesn't lend itself to that. Our culture is built on speed, it's built on convenience, and it's built on entertainment. You know, if ever we want anything, we can have it uh, almost instantly. We don't get intimacy intimacy with God instantly. It takes time, it takes effort and proximity. You know, if ever we need anything, we don't typically have to work super hard to get it, at least not just the, the once of our life. You know, there are deliveries and call-ahead orders and texting and Skype and, you know, carrying our entire lives on our iPhone. I just bought a new iPhone yesterday, so I get to play around with that. I've reached a whole new level of convenience. Life, for all of us, is very, very convenient. But spiritual growth is rarely convenient. In fact, uh, it's one of those we have to make intentional time for. And our go, go, go lifestyle does not lend itself to intentional time set aside. And if ever we're bored which even that is weird to say because if ever we're bored, we just reach in our pockets and then on our phones we have you know, entertainment in our hands. We can find something to occupy our minds with. Boredom is uh, going the way of extinction. Now, I think that following Jesus really is the best life out there, but it isn't always riveting. Uh, you know, sometimes it can even feel bland. Now, I don't think following Jesus should ever be bland, but we're human and you know, that certain feeling creeps in quite a bit. A lot of us just haven't been able to build the discipline of coming close to God. And it is a discipline. Or we try, but we get frustrated and give up after two or three whole days of trying to get close. And then we get mad at God for not making things happen on our time in the way that we tell him to. But then there are those who are, they're very skilled. They, they have this discipline down. They have a vibrant, rich, devotional life. And they've been following Jesus closely for a certain amount of time. But even for those kind of people... God can still feel distant. I want to read uh, Psalm 13 in its entirety. It's only six verses long, um, but uh, we can certainly um, relate to this sentiment. The psalmist writes, O Lord, how long will you forget me? Forever? How long will you look the other way? How long must I struggle with anguish in my soul, with sorrow in my heart every day? How long will my enemy have the upper hand? Turn and answer me, O Lord my God. Restore the sparkle to my eyes or I will die. Don't let my enemies gloat, saying we have defeated him. Don't let them rejoice at my downfall. But I trust in your unfailing love. I will rejoice because you have rescued me. 
I will sing to the Lord because he is good to me. I'm going to go through a few sometimes here. Sometimes we feel a distance from God because God is uh, building our faith. We're in a faith-building season. I think all of us have to, be able, have to be able to answer that question of, will we still follow Jesus in less than ideal circumstances? But then there's another reason, I think. I think that some people are given stories, at least seasons of stories, uh, stories of hardship, of struggle, even tragedy, so they can eventually be a light to other people. You know, some of us were these walking testimonies of how God has rescued us and how we were delivered from darkness when it didn't seem like God was around at all. But then we found out he was. And I think God makes these uh, divine appointments, I like to call them. I think God makes these divine appointments between those who have walked out of darkness into his light and those who are still walking in darkness wondering if there's a light at all. I think God makes those appointments for those kind of people out there. Now, some of us, I do know we just need to kind of dig down, hunker down, press on, build that grit of just uh, building the discipline of growing closer. But some of us might be experiencing distance just so we can uh, inspire and even support someone that God wants us to help out months or even years on down the road. That's probably the best way I could answer that in, you know, five, six minutes. Very good. You know, I agree with Andrew. It's challenging to be a Christian. It's not easy to follow Jesus, but it's worth it. And I think sometimes we can look at others who've really applied themselves to the spiritual disciplines and say, it's easy for them. No, it's, it's not easy to be disciplined and really lean into uh, what it means to, to follow after Jesus in every way, and yet it's worth it. In fact, I believe that because it's difficult, that's why God designed the church, because we need each other. We need each other to support each other, encourage each other, even at times hold each other accountable. We need collective times of worship like this, so we can be reminded of who we're worshiping and who we trust in. We also need what we practice here every weekend at Southwest, and that's communion. You see, I see the, the incredible wisdom by Jesus of, of instituting this this reminder for us. In Scripture, we're told that the communion is a time for us to to remember the one we're following and why we're doing what we do, to get our heart focused on him, to remember the sacrifice, that it wasn't easy for him. Remember, before he went to the cross, he prayed three times in the garden, not my will, but your will be done. It wasn't easy to be obedient, but he was willing to be obedient. That's a reminder for us. So as we take the bread, as we take the cup today, let's remember that it wasn't easy for Jesus to be obedient to the Father. It's not easy for us to be obedient. And yet, let's use this time, as Scripture says, to, to slow down. You know, we, are, we live in that fast-rushed world, and let's slow down and let's reflect on the God that we worship, the Jesus that we follow, and the life that we've been living, let's examine our lives and let's renew our commitment to follow after him even when it's tough. Let's pray together. Dear God, thank you. Thank you that you have not only sent your son to this earth, but Father, he gave us a lasting reminder 
of his love, his sacrifice, so that we could be reminded it's, it was even a struggle for Jesus. And yet, Father, I pray that our hearts will be filled with gratitude as we take the bread and the cup, remembering the love and the grace that's given to us in Christ. And yet help us examine our lives and and renew our commitment to you to follow after your commands and your son with all of our hearts. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Thank you for listening to Southwest Church Teaching Ministries. We are a community of people committed to following Jesus and making disciples. Please join us for one of our three weekly gatherings, Saturdays at 5.30 p.m., Sundays at 9.30 a.m. and 11.15 a.m.